This is another edition of Building a Future with Dan Rundy. We're talking about taxes and development. I'm here with Alex Katane, who is the chief of party for Liberia for DAI on a something called the Revenue Generation for Governance and Growth, RG3. And we're also going to be joined by John Yates, who is calling in from Uganda. So what we want to talk about is why do taxes matter? It's a super boring topic, but a super important topic that much of development actually happens because of the result of development. My friend Catherine Baer at the IMF, who's sort of the tax arena at the IMF, I asked her one time, I said, Catherine, what's the bare minimum for taxes? And she said to me, about 20% of GNP per capita. So many developing countries have not reached 20% of GNP per capita. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's lots of technocratic solutions. There's things like e-filing. I'm sure we're going to talk about e-filing and certain sorts of how do we collect taxes? How do we broaden the tax base? But oftentimes, a lot of the challenges related to taxes are political in nature and various kinds, whether it's crony capitalism or corruption or very clever tax evasion. But what's happened is, is in the last 20 years or so, there's been a lot more attention on what's called domestic resource mobilization, which includes taxes. It's often conflated with taxes, sort of a shorthand for taxes, but includes other things. So, Alex, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So, tell us about what is RG3. So, RG3 is a revenue generation for governance and growth project. It was started about three years ago in Liberia. This project is tackling tax policy, tax administration, and also is trying to build social contracts, strengthen social contracts between the government and the citizenry. In other words, taxpayers or citizenry pays taxes and government has to provide services in return. Now, I understand that you work with the current president of Liberia, who's a soccer star. Is that true? Yes, that is that is very true. That is very true. And does he care about taxes? Is he interested in the tax issues? Well, <clears throat> actually, there is a lot of education that needs to be done in order to be able to get po- politicians interested. We engage George Weah, not, not directly. Actually, we were working with some of the counterparts, some um, associations that actually wanted to ask a question when he was running for the president and not not only him they wanted to ask all presidential hopefuls thank you for all the promises you're making because they, they are very easy to make promises when they run for, for I'm going to put president. kids in schools I'm going to have yes. hospitals that work I'm going to pave the roads I'm going to yes. have electricity I'm going to have police on the streets I'm going to have a bigger army exactly and roads was the primary interest uh, of uh, of George Weah and but to finance them, uh, that's that's a, a multi-million dollar uh, proposition. Multi-billion dollar proposition, probably. probably. Yes, a few billion dollars. And the the question that these business associations asked while he was running for the president was, "Thank you for all your promises. How are you going to finance them?" And that's when, and we were helping uh, the business associations understand the issues that are related to taxation. And and it's not just taxation. We are trying to strike a balance between improving business environment as well as raising taxes. You cannot raise taxes, you know. On the 20 or so current taxpayers and squeak. That too, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, on a lot of these poor countries, there are very few formal taxpayers. So they'll say, oh, you want to do a tax fix, that's great. 
please don't raise my tax rate from 30% to 50% because what you really need to do is go after all the people who have avoided taxes or who are in the informal sector and get them into the formal. For, informal means not pay taxes, not follow labor rules, not respect environmental rules, all those sorts of things. And so getting them into the formal sector is has all sorts of benefits, including getting them to pay taxes, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And that's also important for people to participate and and vote because if, if they uh, pay taxes, they are more likely to, to care about uh, about the direction the country is going. And, that, and, and Alex, that's a, there's a concept for that. It's called tax solidarity, right? There's right. A, there, so that's the fancy term for, in essence, there's sort of an unspoken social compact between taxpayers and the governed that says, I give you the money. Please don't put all of it in Swiss bank accounts. Actually <laughs> spend it well. Actually use it for good. And if you don't, and you, I, you demonstrate that you're a corrupt politician and you don't actually spend it on, you spend it on, you know, uh, Mercedes Benzes in Paris or buying a townhouse in Paris, I'm not going to pay taxes anymore. I'm going to evade, I'm going to evade paying taxes, right? Isn't that an issue? Yes, it is. It is uh, always an issue. They um, people want to see their tax money to be spent properly. But having said that, sometimes th there are consequences for not paying taxes as well. So. I think in almost every developing country, there's a lot more taxes collected in the economy than foreign aid. Is that probably true? Yes, unless some major events happen. That like even Liberia, I don't know what the totality of all, and, and Liberia is kind of a donor darling. What I don't know how much money the whole global system, the African Development Bank, the World Bank, the U.S. and others put into Liberia, but I'm guessing it's about 500 million a year or 600 yes. million a year in foreign aid. I'm guessing. Yes, Masomenos. it is about that. It is about okay. That. And how much does the government of Liberia collect in taxes? About the same. <laughs> okay, so it's it, that's a, a very poor post-conflict country. Yes, but even but but sometime in the near future, Liberia will collect more taxes than it gets in foreign aid. Is that true? Probably true. Yes, because foreign aid is declining, but also uh, the economy is coming back. The society is rebuilt, rebuilt or rebuilding. Rebuilding, yes. Eventually, yeah. of course, they will they will be collecting much more, as, at, at least if they if they, if they po follow and continue continue reforming their tax policy, tax administration. John, you're on the line. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. So, John, you are also with DAI. And you've been, you have this really interesting biography that I encourage people to go online and look, look at. John is the global practice lead for public financial management. So, so John, tell us about why are taxes important? Why, why do taxes matter for development? Well, taxes are really the way for countries to fund their own development. And as you've already highlighted, foreign assistance is in a decline. 20, 30 years ago, for some countries, foreign assistance was their largest source of revenue. Um, this is no longer the case at all. Own source or uh, domestic revenues are, are really the way for countries to help develop themselves and get them along on the journey to self-reliance. Yeah, I love this quote. We did this report, and we, we had a wonderful partnership with DA on this report called Rethinking Taxes and Development. Don't make it a night, Netflix night tonight. Clear your calendar and read Rethinking Taxes and Development. But on page 14, there's a great quote from the president of Ghana, who in 2017 at a press conference with President Macron in France said, it is not right for a country like Ghana 
60 years after independence to still have its health and education budgets being financed on the basis of the generosity and charity of the European taxpayer. By now, we should be able to finance our basic needs ourselves. I don't think the president of Ghana is alone in that sentiment. I, I would bet most developing country leaders feel that way. You know, and I'd be curious, I'd be, I don't know what the percentage of the health or the education budget is foreign aid financed in, in, in Liberia. Do you know, Alex, what, what percent is, is of the, the education or health budget's foreign aid? And, and, and John, do you know in Uganda what percent of the health yeah, budget off the top yeah, of your I mean, head? I, I don't know that I can give you figures, but, but it is substantial. Um, but, but shrinking. The British for shrinking, but still substantial. Uh, the, the British, through DFID, for example, do direct budget support. The European community does quite a bit. The other thing to keep in mind in African countries is that they're getting a lot of assistance from USAID in the area of health. Yeah. Through PEPFAR, for example, yep. which supports providing uh, drugs for HIV AIDS. Um, there's still a, a large contribution in that area. So when it comes to procuring uh, important pharmaceuticals, you know, as much as half in uh, some countries or, or maybe even more is really coming from a U.S. Uh, assistance. Yeah, I, I would argue that the, the, the size of the basic human needs health and education budgets in even the poorest countries, the percentage of foreign aid that's being is, is what's is being spent on these is shrinking. I would have argued maybe 30 years ago in some of the poorest African countries, I would bet 70, 80, 90 percent of the budget for health and education came from foreign aid. I bet today mm -hmm. it's somewhere on along the lines of 20 or 30 percent in many of these countries. I bet we could it's it's something that is a little sometimes a little tricky to figure out because sometimes is if DFID is writing a check directly to the Ministry of Health, that's sort of one thing. Mm -hmm. Or does the U.S. government kind of indirectly providing the meds for PEPFAR, but not writing a check directly to the government of country X? But I would posit that these countries, as they have a growing formal economy, of the 54 sub-Saharan African countries, I think 53 of them have oil gas or mining activity. They've either discovered oil, mm -hmm. gas, and mining. All sub-Saharan African countries have a growing middle class, or most of them do, and if they're not in a conflict. <clears throat> so in some ways, this isn't your grandparents' Africa. It's richer, freer, more capable, and, they're, and, and part of that more larger capacity is the ability to collect more taxes. And I think it's a, it's a hallmark of a functioning state and a somewhat healthy social contract with, with the governed if people are willing to pay taxes. But what I think is interesting, Alex and John, is in this report that we partnered with you on looking at Liberia and Uganda is rethinking tax and development, incorporating political economy considerations in DRM strategies. I know that's like a really wonky, complicated, but basically saying how do we apply political economy to the issue of taxes is something that hasn't really been done to date. So tell us why, tell us how in, in the case of Uganda or tell us in the case of Liberia, if I say the term political economy or politics, how does that impact the, the, the tax, the, the revenue generation or public finance issues that you, you guys come across at DAI? Why don't I start with you, Alex, and then John, I'll go to you. Well, I sure. would say that from the example of the project that uh, USAID uh, and I'm helping run in, in, the, in Liberia, right? It was very important to build traction to get a political buy-in even before the project started. 
So I think some people from from USA, like Steve Rosner, they would they would come out. They went to Liberia and they asked a very important question. We can help you raise your own taxes to become more self-reliant, but are you ready to change by far and large? And they've conducted a certain benchmarking to show them where they uh, and how they are weak. And that was a very good entry point for, for the project because the some political buy-in, at least with some of the major stakeholders, has already been there. But of course, during the implementation of the project, there are all sorts of issues, uh, political issues that come up, vested interests are, are there. Always there are people who, who want to give a lot of concessions and, and exemptions. There are people who do not want to see concessions and exemptions. So it's it's wherever you look, there are a lot of counterparts. You can, uh, you, you choose, you try and identify champions and try to move forward towards the goal that has been pre-agreed with the with the government in, in the first place. So John, how, if I say the term political economy and domestic research and taxes in Uganda, what's your reaction mm-hmm. to that? Yeah, I think Uganda is a, a good example of the importance of political economy analysis uh, when it comes to tax collection, because there's a upcoming election in 2020. And with that upcoming election, Basically, the sense here is that th- there won't be any real controversial uh, policies or reforms that will be implemented before the election. There are areas that are pretty straightforward. The government wants to improve its collections of arrears, so there are substantial uh, tax arrears that could be collected that would uh, help contribute to the budget. There's also some concern about exemptions that have been uh, provided to large taxpayers that hurt uh, revenue collection. So, so there are pretty straightforward areas where things can be done, but we don't expect any uh, controversial uh, tax plans in, in the next in the coming year. Can you each talk about, it seems um, oftentimes in developing countries, there's a handful of business people who have sort of you know, comp- let me put it this way, complex and enmeshed relations with the political class and the society. In the case, AID has worked in a number of countries, El Salvador, Georgia, Rwanda, and the Philippines, among many others, some of whom, may, you know, in, in the case of Rwanda, in the case of Georgia, in the case of El Salvador, over time, there's been significant progress. One, Philippines has had sort of a, is sort of a famous case of having spent a lot of time and effort on sort of technocratic solutions of e-filing here and training the tax collectors there and, you know, putting computers in the tax collectors' offices, all these sort of technical improvements to the business of collecting taxes. But the level of taxes collected in the Philippines is still stubbornly at, I don't know if it's 11% or 12% or 13%, but it's sort of stayed flat for decades, it seems to me that the, the only conclusion I can draw in the case of the Philippines is, is that the crony capitalist class is stubbornly able to kind of outsmart the political system or kind of out, you know, or kind of come up with loopholes or whatever. So if I say to you kind of the, politi- the business gr- class in, in, say, the countries you're working in and sort of its relationship with the the, the current leadership in, the, in the, the two respective countries, now maybe you have to be a little careful about how you talk about this. Could you just talk about 
is that is that where the pushback come? Where's the pushback come from in terms of sort of the kind of tax reforms that the U.S. is supporting the government and doing? Is it coming from business groups? Is it coming from a small handful of? Is it a specific industry? Is it say the someone who's an ex an importer of goods because the taxes at the ports are easy to collect and there's also the room for bribery or corruption at ports, this sort of a thing. Can you guys just respond a little bit to this issue of, let's call it the crony capitalist class, and how does that play into this conversation? Sure. Well, in Uganda, I think there are three groups that you could take a look at. Not all of them fit in the label of crony uh, capitalism. But if you look at large-scale agriculture producers and uh, Uganda's uh, an agricultural uh, economy, th there does seem to be uh, concern that this group doesn't uh, pay its fair share of uh, taxes but has a lot of uh, political power and, and has the right uh, relationships. Another group that stands out is traders, and with traders, a lot of the issue is that they're informal, uh, they fly under the radar, uh, they'll have a small little off representational office, and then you don't realize that behind the scenes they have large warehouses, are doing a lot of trade and making a lot of money. So when the tax inspectors come, they, they act like they aren't doing much business. And then you've got the uh, investors, often uh, foreign investors, and you know, the issue here is, is there abuse with asking for exemptions if there's really an opportunity to make money, for example, in oil and gas? Do you, do you really need to give exemptions to get foreign investors to come or not? Or are they just, you know, playing the, playing the game, playing countries off of each other to see where they can get the most in terms of exemptions? So, I mean, I think those are at least three areas in, in Uganda. And then in terms of the foreign investors, one of the big issues in Uganda, and I think it's also an issue uh, in Liberia, is dealing with uh, transfer pricing. Transfer pricing allows uh, a large multinational to, in, in essence, uh, increase their expenses, lower uh, what appears to be the income generated in country. And, and lower lower their tax bill. Yeah, and so I think this is a tricky topic for the U.S., right? I mean, I, I know that we, it's not, there's, there's some issues that touch either U.S. or European countries when it comes to this issue of transfer pricing. It's, it's more tricky than other issues for us as the United States. Is that true? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it obviously is an issue from the perspective that if, USAID is supporting a program that increases taxes for American uh, companies. Uh, it may not be uh, completely popular, but but on the other hand, it, it seems to have support. You know, definitely in, in Uganda, there's been support to look at the uh, transfer pricing issue, and, and there's been some limited success over the uh, past year. Uh, hopefully, they can continue it. So, Alex, if I say the term, talk about, if I say the term crony capitalist, you don't have to agree with crony capitalist, but what's your, your crony capitalism and political economy, how does that relate to the context of Liberia? Well, there are 
quite a uh, quite a few vested interests in in any country. Uh, Maybe that's know. the way to describe it: vested interests. <laughs> and uh, and and they they're able to to influence policy uh, or even administration. Like from my experience, sometimes foreign uh, investors they come in, into the country and they and they may be the first target for taxation and and i'm not talking about oil industry uh, for example but uh, it could be tel teleco telcos right uh, telecom communications you know mobile mobile communications and every country i go there uh, when you ask them oh, okay who do we tax telcos <laughs> so where do we get additional revenues from telcos and 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 at the same time there are uh, some sectors, uh, and it could be some agriculture or forestry or or oil, uh, uh, natural resources that are not taxed and or not taxed uh, sufficiently, and very often that's because they are much better connected. They they can uh, negotiate their position with the with the government. Uh, much. Uh, how, we've just published this report on rethinking tax and development. What did you all think of the report? And what were some of the takeaways that you had from the report that, that either sort of either applied to your business, to your work, or to apply how should that the sector that the, your, your colleagues should be thinking about across the, let's call it the DRM sector. I know that's a wonky term, but sort of the DRM and public finance communities. How about that? So, Alex, what, what, you, what was your takeaway? It looks into into the politics of um, uh, you know uh, taxes and, and and politics and says how important it is to build consensus to uh, to look at political realities of taxation as well as technical solutions that are being brought to the to the table and even more importantly I think it, it supports this idea of of stepping up financing for DRM. And that's that's something uh, I think a lot of people over overlook because let's l look at the pro at the RG3 project and of course the counterparts our counterparts uh, Liberian Revenue Authority and just this year I think the revenues would go up by about uh, uh, 60 million uh, 70 million and the size of our project is 15 million so you uh, for for 5 years so so for a little bit of aid money you're you're get you're collecting multiples of ta additional tax exactly. dollars exactly and that is a winner and that as you uh, said before will help them become more independent uh, and it's not only european donors uh, that that play a role at the at, at this arena uh, anymore we we have to realize that china is also there they're also uh, coming in with substantial uh, infrastructure uh, financing and and when countries are desperate they may not negotiate their position well and we do see it around around the world uh, so independence is having reliable source of revenues and uh, does help countries become more independent. Hey, John? Yeah I, I think the report adds a lot of value uh, in terms of the discussion on DRM. From my perspective, it's basically impossible to separate taxes and politics. They go hand in hand. Uh, you see it in every country. You see it in uh, developing countries and uh, developed economies. So it, it's one of the things that makes the work difficult. But then at the same time, there, there is this sense of urgency to help countries uh, improve their level of self-reliance, and, and the way to do it is through 
better domestic uh, resource mobilization. I do think that the Uganda is really a good example because it still has the direct budget uh, transfers, for example, in health. It's got an upcoming election, uh, which means that you know, nothing controversial is really likely to happen in terms of a tax policy. So what, what do you do in, in these types of environments? I, I don't think it makes sense for U.S. aid or other uh, donor organizations to just sit back and wait and say, well, there's an election coming, so we, we can't provide assistance or help improve revenue collection. But you also have to understand what's realistic. I, I think it's important really to educate the uh, public and uh, politicians uh, in this type of environment before uh, the election so people understand a lot of the uh, tax issues. But then also you can help uh, on the technical side in Uganda, where there are large outstanding tax arrears, helping improve that collection is going to benefit the budget, but it's also not likely to be uh, controversial. So I, I do think that Uganda prevent, provides a good example of why political economy analysis is, is so important when implementing uh, projects that support DRM. Well, guys, we've run out of time. I really appreciated our partnership with DAI. John, thanks for calling in. Alex, thanks for coming in to be a, we're having a public event and you'd be shocked at the number of people who are interested in taxes and political economy. It's got a bigger audience than you, one would imagine. And the reason is, is that sophisticated thinkers on development and human progress understand that this is a critical component to having a successful society. So thanks for your partnership and um, hope to uh, uh, work more with you guys in the future. Thanks very much. Yep. Thank you, Dan. Okay. Thank you.